All right, good morning, everybody. I apologize. I had this in my calendar for 10 o'clock. So that's my fault. Sorry about that. No, no problem. We, uh, we did the interview for you. Look right on that. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah, wonderful. Very much appreciate that. for today is uh, Russell Funk from University of Minnesota. Uh, uh, Russell uh, earned his uh, PhD at University of Michigan in 2014, uh, he, uh, where he also had a, a, an NSF doctoral fellowship. His research uh, focuses on network science, technology strategy, science of science, as well as uh, a lot of research uh, applying methods from network science to healthcare. Uh, he uh, uh, earned uh, honorable, honorable mention uh, for the James Thompson Award uh, at the American Sociological Association, uh, won the Best Student Paper Award from the Technology Innovation Management Division of AOM. Uh, he does some editing in a, a journal uh, of the American Sociological Association called Economic uh, Sociology, uh, not a journal, I'm sorry, a newsletter. Um, and of course, um, is uh, publishing very uh, uh, vigorously uh, with publications across a wide range of journals, including ASQ, AMJ, Research Policy, AMR, Management Science, MIS Quarterly, as well as over 10 articles in medical journals. Uh, and is uh, starting to get a lot of traction on Google Scholar. So please join me in welcoming our rising star guest for today, Russell Funk. Thanks, everyone. So, Russell, I don't know if you if you're a a, um, a viewer of my videos on YouTube, but if you are, then you know I like to start these interviews by asking uh, about how you got into this field of uh, uh, this profession of the, of being a strategy professor in the first place. Uh, as I've never heard a ten year old say, "I, I want to be a strategy professor when I grow up." So, um, so tell us a little bit about your journey that led you into this field. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, of course. Well, first of all, just, you know, thanks again for, uh, for having me. And, um, you know, the, I was mentioning before you got here that this, I think this interview format is really cool. And um, so I, I'm, I'm excited about this. Um, I, um, so let me think, well, as a kid, I, I knew, we were actually just talking a little bit about what I wanted to do when I grew up earlier. And we used to ask me if I wanted to be a doctor since I had all these papers on medical stuff. But um, I think from a pretty young age, I was interested in research and science. And, um, you know, the idea of being a professor, an academic, and an aunt that uh, uh, is a history professor, and she was a big influence on me. And so, kind of knew that's what I wanted to do. And I didn't really know what field, though, mm. the question or what what questions to study. Um, and so, when I was an undergrad, I started out um, um, in the uh, in chemistry and material science. Um, and I, so I was at University of Chicago and I uh, got a summer internship or I worked for actually a couple years in the summer and then uh, during the year as a research assistant at Argonne National Lab in their material science division. And it was really a, a cool opportunity for a lot of reasons, but um, one was that I was working, the project I was working on was this very interdisciplinary project. And it was for this kind of, wild far out um, idea for a quantum computer. And the idea was to, and this wasn't you know, my idea, I was just the, the lab rat kind of uh, gopher sort of guy, but I, uh, the, the idea behind the project was we had these um, C60 fullerene molecules like soccer balls. Mm -hmm. And to open them up and put these nitrogen atoms inside. And then for the nitrogen atoms, you can detect the spin on them, which could be up or down. And so that could correspond to like a binary digit. And then the idea was to attach those to strands of DNA, which then could be read as data. You know, and so you could have this very tiny quantum level uh, computer. And anyway, so I don't think the project was a bit out there. And I 
think it never ended up totally getting off the ground, but that, that in and of itself was, um, was interesting to me. So since I was the, you know, the, the RA gopher, I was doing a lot of the communication between uh, different people on the team, mm-hmm. like biologists, computer scientists, uh, material scientists. And I was really interested because here's this really, really cool project, but there were a lot of organizational difficulties with it. You know, first of all, Argonne's like a big, um, like a university. And so people are spread across different buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a lot of specialization. And so, you know, people from different disciplines didn't really know what the expertise of the people in the different fields were. And there's different terminology and other things like that. And so around the same time, I was taking some of my prerequisite classes and uh, just by chance uh, took a class from a, a guy in the sociology department who was kind of a pioneer in social network analysis and organizations. And we were reading, doing some readings where people were kind of mapping out uh, connections among people and organizations and looking at different features of those networks. And I was like, wow, this is like a really amazing you know, technique. And you could use this to map out the networks of people in places like Argonne and look for inefficiencies where you could have cool interdisciplinary projects, but people aren't connecting and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, I just started getting more and more interested in the organizational aspects and more so than the chemistry and so forth. And I decided that that's what I wanted to do. Um, and so, but my whole exposure to social science had been through the sociology department. And so when I started applying to PhD programs, that seemed like the natural place to go. And right. um, so that's just kind of how I, I ended up going through the, the sociology route. But since I was always interested in science and innovation, I just started reading when I got to Michigan um, Michigan is a, a very, has a very interdisciplinary orientation. And so people in the sociology department work a lot with people in the business school and education and, and so forth. And so I really started to connect with people at Ross, um, who were doing all this awesome work on innovation and started talking with Gautam Ahuja and, and mm-hmm. when I realized, well, there's, there's actually so many more people that are thinking about innovation and organizations and efficiency and so forth that I just started to gravitate more and more towards um, uh, organizational theory and strategy and strategic management. And so then when it came to time to go on the job market, I just realized, well, if I, you know, strategy department is, is really, the research that's done there is, is fitting much more with you know, my identity and, and my orientation and the people that I'd like to talk with and, and, um, and so forth. And so that's how I ended up making the jump from sociology to strategy. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting story. You know, the two jumps, I was going to ask where, you know, how do you get from sociology, how do you get to sociology from chemistry? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, But, and, uh, you know, especially from, from quantum computing part of chemistry. (laughs) So uh, very, very interesting story. So um, yeah, so your PhD actually was not in the business school at Michigan. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and you mentioned there's pretty close collaboration between uh, the the sociology group and the um, uh, and the, uh, the 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 folks over in the management group at uh, at, at uh, Ross. Mm-hmm. Um, so, tell us a little bit about what that was like, uh, mm-hmm. what the PhD program was like for you, uh, bridging across those two um, uh, those two groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so um, the, so first of all, just, I mean, this may be interesting to the PhD students, but um, the PhD programs in sociology are a bit different from, I think the typical management PhD program in a few ways, but one is just, they're much bigger. So um, my cohort had just my, my entering year, we had 19 PhD students. Oh my Lord. Um, which is bigger than our entire PhD program at Minnesota for, across all years. No wonder, no wonder, uh, uh, you know, no wonder the, so, the salaries are lower in sociology than in business. They, I, these guys need to learn a little something about supply and demand. I don't think it's a good thing. And in fact, after, after they, they started, you know, I think realizing that and they've gone down a little bit, but it's, um, um, but I think that's also typical of, of, you know, economics and some other areas too. Um, um, but I think, so I think it's better the way it's done in, in business schools. But so because it's so huge, you, you kind of specialize a little bit more within, um, um, within the PhD program and you kind of align yourself with 
subsets of students and subsets of faculty. And so my area was economic sociology and organizations. And so I was working with people like uh, Jason Owen Smith and Mark Mizrocki and so forth. Right. Um, they're in sociology, but they a lot of their research ends up, you know, they publish in management journals and, and go to, you know, AOM and things. And so, so I had a little bit of exposure there from the beginning. Uh, and then the other really great thing at Michigan was there's this um, uh, workshop that's been going on for, I think- Decades, right? Decades, yeah, ICOS, um, right. which is the Interdisciplinary Committee on Organizational Studies. And it's kind of this legendary thing that is genuinely very interdisciplinary. We'd have people from the music school and architecture and nursing and sociology, education coming and um, you know, inviting speakers from their studying organizations, um, you know, from also interdisciplinary perspectives, but coming in, um, you know, each week. And so I would just attend that regularly. And that's how I got to know people like Jerry Davis and Gautam Ahuja. And um, so I ended up taking some right. classes then in organizations in, in at the management and organizations department and then the strategy department and just kind of shifted more and more towards, you know, hanging out with the, um, MNO and strategy students. And so it actually wasn't that hard. Um, I think because Michigan's a pretty interdisciplinary place, I think in some universities, um, it might be harder to do um, sure. just because there isn't quite as much um, bridging, but I was, I was pretty fortunate in that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't hard. And, and I got a lot of encouragement from my advisors to just go and explore those, those interests as well. So. Right. Yeah. I've heard a lot about ICOS. I think um, trying to remember who 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 founded it was it Jerry? I think it precedes Jerry. I think it was uh, 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 Robert Kahn and uh, like Mayor Zald and okay. um, who else? Um, oh, uh, Carl Wyke, I think. Oh yeah, right. Of course. Um, yeah. And probably those are those are the main ones. I, oh, probably uh, Michael Cohen. I think. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So mm -hmm. some really great, great folks get that organized. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so your, your, um, remind us maybe a little bit about your, um, your, your dissertation topic. Uh, mm -hmm. What was the topic and um, how did you find that topic? Mm -hmm. um, great. Yeah. So my dissertation was uh, kind of the three essay format. Um, and the unifying topic uh, among them was uh, intra-organizational networks. So looking at connections among people in organizations uh, or, you know, some, well, yeah. so connections among people in organizations. And I was interested in kind of the properties of those networks and how that would relate to organizational outcomes. And so in a lot of ways it, it mapped to, it was inspired by the story I told earlier about Argonne National Lab. So like if you yes, think right. Argonne and you know, it's got this kind of distributed disciplinary organized set of buildings, um, you know, can we look at the connections among people there? And I haven't mapped Argonne, but you know, I, I suspect you see these clusters of sure. people by different fields and thinking about like, well, is that a good type of organization or network organization for innovation um, or um, would something that's more integrated, uh, work better. And so the um, idea for the dissertation was to, the unifying theme of the dissertation was basically exploring those questions. And so the first chapter uh, was the paper that became my, my 2014 AMJ paper. And the, the research setting there was nanotechnology, which was inspired by the quantum computing stuff. So that the quantum computing thing was sort of a nanotech project. Ah, right. Yeah. Fullerenes, fullerenes are kind of within the wheelhouse of nanotechnology. That's one of the, the molecules that's really of interest there. And um, so I, I started studying that because I knew a little bit about that, that industry. And um, I uh, was able to, I essentially collected the patent data for uh, firms, about 400 firms in that industry, and then mapped out the collaborations there and tried to look at sort of descriptively what they look like and then also to um, uh, see if there were connections to different innovation outcomes. And, and the, one, of the, one of the questions there is that, so the connection in that paper was about geography and these internal networks. And 
as I've been digging more into you know, strategy and, and, and that literature, there's a lot of work on clustering and agglomeration and how absolutely Valley, Silicon Valley, Boston, you know, that's where you gotta be. These are the great places for innovation, which I think is, um, there's, there's truth to, but then I was in Ann Arbor, you know, which is not a cluster, a tiny town. And, um, you know, thinking a lot about like, well, that's, you know, I, you know, Silicon Valley is great, but there's a lot of stuff that's happening outside Silicon Valley. There's like a lot of companies that are not in Silicon Valley or Boston. And so like, how do they, um, how do they innovate or like, how do we account for, for, for their types of uh, performance outcomes? And that's where I started, where I started thinking about maybe these internal networks matter. Like how do you maintain diversity? Maybe there, uh, if you're not in a cluster, you know, having a network that will be set up in a way to keep diverse ideas uh, so, you know, you don't get the, the homogeneity, the group think everybody's working together and you're geographically isolated. Maybe, you know, that's not so great versus like you've got uh, more separate diverse groups. Maybe that retains like diverse knowledge inside of um, these more geographically isolated organizations. So it's kind of looking at that contingency uh, perspective. So the idea is kind of how do you create a, a cluster within the organization instead of between organizations? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting topic, right? So, um, yeah, so that's, uh, so, so what were the big, what were the challenges? What were the main challenges in doing uh, a dissertation on that topic? Um, well, I think that, um, I think there were a few and some that I'm, you know, I still face a little bit today, uh, which is that, the, I kind of wanted to go to a slightly different level of analysis. So there's a ton of work on networks and organizations, but most of it's looking at the networks of individual people. Like, so yes, about Ron Burt's ego uh, network, as they call it. Ego network, exactly. Yeah. So like Ron Burt, you know, you want to be in a structural hole and then you're more innovative um, or things like that. And, but what I was interested in, again, going back to some of those earlier experiences is thinking about this from an organizational level, like what does the, the set of collaborations look like in this organization as a whole? And I mean, in my view, that's a very different question from what does my individual network look like? And in fact, I think there's also some really interesting questions about how there could be tension between this like individual level and this, this collective level. Like, you know, if I'm, if you think about it from a Ron Burt type of uh, point of view of structural holes, like, I could benefit from keeping these two clusters apart, which might really make me, you know, do better. But maybe the organization as a whole would be better from bringing these two clusters together, right? And so, um, so I was interested in this this bigger level, uh, but it's been hard to um, uh, communicate. I think why that's interesting, or people see, oh, networks, organizations, innovation. They're like, oh, this is people, you know, this has really been done, or is this really that new? And so, like, communicating that. Hey, this is a different level, and actually, like the theories we have at the low level might not really be the most appropriate ones here. Has been, um, I mean, not I think incredibly tricky, but that's been one of the things that re reviewers read fast and are very sure. when the bar to showing something's novel is pretty high, and so um, so that's been been one thing that I, you know, battling with. I think another related thing is just, um, and this is especially true with. Um, um, so I, as you notice, I've got some papers in healthcare journals. Yes. There, that might seem like way off the beaten path, like what does this have to do with anything? But it, actually the, the whole idea there is to take this intra-organizational network perspective. And so it's not looking at innovation, but it's, it's the same thing, but just applied to healthcare. And so we're looking at networks, not among inventors, but among physicians and trying to see like, well, you know, is... Do, do these health systems deliver better care when they have more integrated networks or, or things like that? Mm, mm -hmm. And so, but for there, the, the network point of view is not um, nearly as well known in the you know, health services or health economics, or especially in the clinical journals. And um, at the same time though, um, uh, well, so, so it's not as well known. So you have to be really careful with how you communicate things, you know, because mm -hmm. don't make it really, really clear you'll lose people right away. But if you can make it clear, then it, then I've had really good experiences where there being positive reactions, like you know, physicians who will read it and be like, yeah, I looked at this picture and you had like 
bad network, good network. And you could yeah. and it was like, it made sense. And we do it this way and we should do it that way. And, you know, and so, um, so just the, and I think every area of research you face this, but just really figuring out how you can best translate your findings that might be kind of ap- academic to people that are outside of your area, even if they're academics or, you know, people that are, are more, more practitioners. Um, that's been, been a challenge that I'm, always trying to do better on as well. So, so I, I confess to having a little bit of deja vu because the, the some of the themes of this conversation, I feel like uh, are, are themes that I, I had similar conversations with Joe LaBianca 15 years mm-hmm. ago. Oh, yep, yep. <laughs> you know, because uh, uh, Joe was a colleague of mine at Emory. And, you know, I remember he started the, uh, the intra-organizational network conference, the ION conference. I don't know if that's still going at all, but uh, I remember he ran it for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, his, his, uh, his struggles to, uh, to clarify, you know, what's the right theory at this other level of analysis, at this, uh, you know, this different uh, level of analysis, and what's the... Um, you know what all these guys are missing by just focusing on the ego networks and 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 all that. So I was wondering if 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 his work was a was an inspiration for you in any way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I mean, there's I I was uh, it was was fortunate to have a chance to present at that ION conference a couple of years ago. I don't know if it's still going. I hope it is. Um, but the whole uh, uh, Joe and the whole group of of people at Kentucky at the the Lynx Center, the Lexington. Lexington inter I'm I shouldn't shouldn't try to get the, the name. <laughs> um, I'll look it up later and put it on a uh, on a subtitle here <laughs> but so there is definitely a, a group of people that are doing intra-organizational networks uh research uh within the the networks area um and uh so like you know Joe and um you know Martin Kilduff right and, um uh, a number of other people. And so, yes, I definitely built off, off of their work, uh, a lot. And, um, um, but it's, you know, the, it's trying, it's when your reviewers are people other than, <laughs> than they are that you've really got to, got to do some more of that, that translation work. And I'm sure it's just like any, any area where, you know, as I said, reviewers are always skeptical of, of what's new and, um, and that, so. Right. So um, I'm reminded, uh, so let me move on to maybe the next phase, which I guess would have been, you know, finishing your dissertation and going and finding a job. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm reminded of this because just recently, of course, I I gave the talk at uh, at Minnesota, had an opportunity to speak with the PhD students there for a QA and a session. Um, Very impressive group of PhD students you've got there. Uh, you know, particularly impressed, uh, you know, with Haram Saw. Her, mm-hmm. her work, I think, is really good. She's, uh, I think, a future star uh, like yourself and, uh, you know, impressed uh, that, you know, she managed to get a, a, a job in a year that was just so difficult on the market with so many hiring freezes everywhere. Uh, and she got one of the very few jobs that were out there. So, um, and, and she led off the questioning uh, clearly a leader among her peers, she led off the questioning with a whole bunch of questions about the job market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so later on today, I'm planning on posting a video of, uh, of that conversation, which, you know, kind of contains my, uh, my best uh, tips on the job market. But I'm just wondering, one of the things that came up there was communicating across, uh, across disciplinary boundaries in, in, in your job talk and in your, you know, your interviews with, with people uh, on the job market because, you know, different, uh, different departments are structured differently, right? You may come from a department that's, you know, like our department, which is all strategy and going into a department which may include organizational behavior and HR and all that, and you have to be able to talk across those boundaries. So I was wondering if there were if there were particular challenges for you in that since you were coming from an economic sociology group, um, and uh, um, yeah, so tell us a little bit about how what the what the job market experience was like for you and whether those inter, interdisciplinary boundaries were were a challenge for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it is. Um, let me just try to. Try to think. So, I 
I think maybe yes and no. I mean, um, yes, in the sense that different communities um, value different things in your research, right? So like, for example, um, um, in organization theory and sociology, there's a lot of emphasis put on theoretical novelty, you know, and are your hypotheses interesting and creative and are you doing something really different in, you know, uh, more of an uh, economically oriented scholar might be very concerned with identification and, you know, things like that. And uh, OB people might be very concerned with the micro mechanisms and, and mm -hmm. so, so it can be hard to do everything and please everyone in a single paper. And so, um, when you're going out in the job market and you're um, presenting in front of strategy and management groups, which could encompass all of those plus more, you know, maybe you've got some political scientists or right. or other people in there. Um, it can get it can get hard to, you know, to to do that. And so you've got to, but at the same time, you you obviously all those are are valid and important concerns, and you want to make sure that you're. Um, you know, taking them seriously and, and addressing them. And so I think in some cases, that's, that's a bit of a challenge. At the same time, I said no as well, because, um, you know, I, I came from a sociology department, I got, you know, a job and offers in a management department, my district, looking back, um, you know, my, my job market paper was also pretty weird in that I was, <laughs> Um, doing this inter-organizational network thing, but I was using data from an online community. And so I'm thinking like here, okay, this sociologist trying to get a job in a business school, presenting data that's probably more for like an information school. And, you know, yet somehow people were understanding enough and, you know, paid enough attention to me that uh, it worked throughout the process. So I think people are, you know, are, are open. And the one thing I'll say that, um, you know, I, I try to think about uh, a lot and, and I think, you know, can, can work is that um, everybody, regardless of their field, I think we're all academics and um, we're all just get innately curious about interesting questions or puzzles, right? So when you show that there's some contradiction in something and not so much like, well, theory A predicts this and theory B predicts this, but like, hey, here's something that, you know, you might, you might see in the world or here's something that people that, that you might encounter. And, and, you know, when you think about it, it's a little puzzling because you could see it could go this way or that way, or just, you know, kind of puzzles. If you can present it in that term, those sort of terms and, and think about what is inherently puzzling about your research, then I feel like that's a really good way to just get everybody involved. Cause we're, you know, right. as academics, we're all just innately curious. And, um, and so I try to lead presentations and things like that. I don't always do it successfully, but um, with, um, you know, looking for the puzzle and, and yeah, that's start with the puzzle, start with the problem. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, so that's my, um, you know, I'm, I'm probably an odd duck, so I don't know how much my experiences there will necessarily translate to people. Or well, you know, it may also have been a little bit easier for you because you, you know, your experience at Michigan may have primed you for this kind of interdisciplinary conversations through mm -hmm. that ICOS, uh, um, you know, experience and, uh, and, and working with, with folks in the business school, right? So it may have been a little bit easier for you than it would have been for most. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So um, um, what, do you, what do you think? So what do you think are the most imp important unanswered questions in your uh, corner of research, right? Which I guess we would define as um, the application of in intra-organizational networks to uh, innovation, science, and uh, healthcare delivery? What do you think are the most important unanswered questions in that, in that space? Um, well, exactly the questions I'm doing research on. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so, no, I, I do think, though, that, um, I mean, personally, so I think there is a, starting to be, a, you know, a fair bit of research on structure of these of different inter-organizational networks and people have shown you know to vary with varying degrees of um you know using various techniques and and so forth that they matter for certain things uh, and i think you don't even need really great research to just see that 
that they do. And people have been talking in the business press and, and elsewhere for a long time just about, oh, we need to break down these silos. And if only these two people had across the organization and connected, we could have done this. And so, um, so I think there's definitely a case to be made that they matter. But what, um, what uh, we don't have much information on is like how to intervene uh, on them. We're on networks generally, right? So like if you if you have, and I think this makes a lot of sense in healthcare, where people talk a lot about fragmentation in care delivery. Mm. And the primary care physicians and the surgeons should be, have very well established relationships and communicating, but, but they don't. And so, you know, how do you, how do you restructure organizations to try to improve that? Mm. So kind of the dynamics or network interventions that you could use to change these networks, um, I think is one of the biggest uh, areas uh, for work. Um, and you know, just based on some of the little uh, research I've done, I think it's um, I think it's probably trickier than it might seem. Um, just as with, I guess, most most types of interventions, just because there's probably a lot of opportunity for unintended consequences. I mean, mm -hmm. our relationships and the way we build them are based on not just like a single factor, but a whole host of factors, and it's hard to intervene on you know, very, using very complex interventions that would, you know, target many different factors. And we probably don't even have enough knowledge about yet about all the different factors that shape how you, how people build connections and, and what they're a function of. And so, um, but I think that's, that's in the end of the day, what's probably going to really matter for bringing some of these insights to, to the real world is, is figuring out what kinds of interventions can, you know, people use, like, is it, you know, is it shared spaces or is it, um, you know, mentorship programs, or is it, uh, you know, mini conference? I mean, just you could think of any, any, you know, dozens or, or any number of interventions that you, you could use, but what works best and what are the kinds of networks that result and are the relationships transitory or, or so right. forth, um, you know, or so just like, let me give, maybe make a concrete example. So, um, and I haven't, haven't studied this yeah, directly, I'd like to, but a lot of universities now are doing these, and funders are doing these grants where they're trying to encourage interdisciplinarity. And so, and I actually got one of these from uh, Minnesota, um, where, but the, the trick is that you can get a, a grant, but you've got to have investigators from three different schools, you know, so right. like medicine and business and, I don't know, engineering or something like that. Um, and the idea is to build new connections, but my, my hunch and just by looking at these is that in a lot of cases on paper, they might look like really new connections, but it, it turns out it's actually, you know, a, an economist in the business school and an economist in the med school and an economist in the, <laughs> in the engineering school that all end up working together or something like that. And so, um, you know, you, you kind of end up while you're trying to promote something new, you might end up just, um, facilitating your deepening connections that are kind of more or less already there, you know, and, um, um, and then, so what do you do? Do you, do you try to incentivize people to work across disciplines? Well, then you just get three people in the strategy department, one that's a sociologist by training, one that's a management right. person by training, and one that's a, you know, um, I don't know, uh, economist or something like that. And so, um, so, and then there's questions about, well, who would respond to these? Is it, you know, um, so not everybody has the same bandwidth to, or some people might find it hard to go out and find collaborators across different schools, like junior sure. people like don't have the connections. So then is this the people that are already well-connected across the university that are going out and, um, just building connections that, uh, or further connecting to other people that they're already connected to. And so, I mean, not to, I think these, these programs are really cool. So not to pick on them, but I think the same thing goes for a lot of types of interventions is that they're so complex that there's a lot to be studied with them. Right, and it's not like there's no cost to the people involved of forming new connections, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's, uh, there's time and effort involved every time you're going to have to, you know, make a new connection. Yeah. Um, and I'm, uh, so one interesting thing, what you're saying about uh, network interventions, everything you've mentioned is about forming uh, connections, right? Nothing about breaking connections. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, you know, I know, uh, uh, for example, it, when, when doctors treat epilepsy, sometimes what they do is they, they cut uh, the mm -hmm. brain, they cut con certain connections between different parts of the brain mm -hmm. uh, to, to reduce those effects. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, you know, are there, are there, are there networks that are too connected that mm-hmm. need to be less connected mm-hmm. uh, for, for some purposes? I don't know. And, and if so, what would, what, what would an intervention like that even look like? I don't even know, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that is, that is a really good question. And um, I think it's, it's definitely true. And I mean, one example would just be the, um, you know, the idea of you've got this, you know, super interconnected group that like the geographically isolated people, you know, that are researchers out in the middle of, you know, nowhere, uh, that all they do is talk to each other. And they're, you know, this, this densely interconnected thing, and maybe you want to kind of reduce their connectivity. And so then, then they're thinking in more diverse ways. And, you know, you've got some more diversity um, in your organization. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's a good question. And it's interesting to think about what are the right ways to do that. I mean, um, you know, people, um, don't like to be told what to do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, so if you come and and have some intervention that just says, okay, you are not going to, not going to work with this person anymore or that person, you know, uh, it's, it's, you you wonder how people are going to, end up responding to some of those. And so it's, it's more like, do you use a carrot or a stick? Do you, you know, incentivize people to work with other people and then hope that they'll break off these connections that might not be as productive? Or do you say, okay, you're not gonna work with these people. You're not gonna work with those people. I mean, it's also interesting to think about, we know that geograph or physical proximity is a huge, huge um, determinant of whether you connect with people. And there's this old like 30 meter rule that you know, if you look at the probability of a conversation based on office distance or something, it's just like, you know, 30, you know, and it, it right. just, um, and, um, so, so one thing companies do a lot is, is just change up shared spaces. And, um, you know, that could certainly be one way of, uh, of breaking ties. It is interesting though. And this, this reminds me a little bit of the unintended consequences. There was a study that I was reading, um, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago, And it was looking at an experiment where they implemented um, at a company where they implemented open office spaces, Mm -hmm. um, which are really popular these days, uh, as opposed to just everyone having their separate offices. And they found that after they had the open offices that people like communication actually went down, like the face-to-face communication went down. um, And people, instead of like just dropping by the office, knocking on the door, would just like send people their colleagues email or text messages or things like that. And I think that the idea was uh, people just felt like too on, you know, that, mm-hmm. that when you can see what everybody's doing and talk with anybody at any moment, that um, it was just overwhelming. And so instead of going around and having these hallway conversations, people just started talking less. And so it's, you know, it's, it, it's why these the unintended consequences are, are really really important to think about so yeah yeah well and you know i mean there's a reason why we have cubicles you know i mean there's there's a reason why those things exist mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, is you know i guess it provides a uh, an intermediate kind of balanced form between you know connectedness and privacy i mean it, there's a wall there but it's it's not a full wall right yeah uh, yeah so uh yeah and i wonder um for, for, for network interventions, I forgot the question I was going to ask. I'm sure it'll come back to me. But um, tell us a little bit about how you've gotten from the, uh, the original dissertation work that you were doing uh, to the current work that you were doing. How is it different and, and what, uh, you know, what, um, uh, what milestones you hit along the way or what... Um, um, uh, turning points. That's the word I was looking for. What turning points made you maybe uh, hit along the way that have maybe shifted your attention? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, I think a lot of the, the core questions are, are like the, the big motivating questions have remained, you know, somewhat stable. I'm still very interested in interorganizational networks and then getting, and then I did have this one chapter of the dissertation that was looking a little bit at like the dynamics of these networks. I didn't look at anything like an intervention, um, um, but I'm still, you know, looking at those a lot. And a lot of it um, has been driven 
I think not quite as much by like a, a master plan, but um, but by opportunities and especially by work with collaborators. So I've I, I work almost all my work is is with collaborators and um, you know oftentimes across different disciplinary boundaries and. I really use that as an opportunity to learn new things and try new things. And so an example of one way that um, I have, have evolved um, uh, and with help of collaborators is, is through this uh, work on network intervention. So I was always interested in like, okay, how might you start to change this? And, um, but just by kind of virtue of my training and you know, people were at Michigan or just my interests, like uh, my dissertation didn't have any experimental work and, um, Okay. We had uh, uh, exposure to, but since coming to Minnesota, so we this is where space matters. So we um, in strategy share a hallway with uh, the um, information systems department, and there are a lot of people in information systems who are doing field experiments. Mm. So a couple of years back, I started working with uh, a colleague, Sophia Bapna, and her dissertation was all about using field experiments in online communities, and so she had a lot of expertise there. And I was bringing this expertise on networks and networks and organizations. And so we started working together and we've done a couple of these field experiments um, to try to uh, figure out how you can help people meet new people. Uh, we've been looking primarily at conferences and trying to think about when you've got a big conference, most people actually end up just talking to the people they already know at the conference. Right. Even though if you survey them, they say they want to network and meet new people, they immediately go and talk to <laughs> you know, the person they've known for 20 years, um, right. as opposed to talking to new people. And so we've done some experiments where we've been trying to figure out ways that uh, try out different interventions to help people meet new, um, meet new people at conferences. And we've been looking at, in particular, we've been studying tech and trying to think about um, how to get, uh, you know, younger people, women, other people who are um, often in particular I have trouble meeting and connecting with new people just due to homophily and, and things like that to uh, build connections. And so that's, um, so that's been really neat. That's a way that my, my work has evolved and, and through learning new methods and, and getting experiences with uh, collaborators. Um, By the way, there's a, there's a, a, a Purdue founded startup hmm. called Socio that is developing tools to help people make connections at conferences. That's their specific purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, apps and tools uh, to, uh, to help people, you know, and they, they, they sell these tools to, to conferences. And, uh, you know, if you, if you would find it useful, I could, I could try to introduce you to the founder of that company. Oh yeah, no, that'd be fantastic. No, I think, um, I think it's, I mean, conferences are so important. Um, in so many fields for, uh, you know, for people to, to get jobs, to meet new people. And I think they're not as efficient for that as they, they, they could be. And so I think it's, um, yeah, that'd be, that'd be fantastic. They're also really, I've also learned kind of accidentally that they're really great for research because it's like you have one and then it's done and boom, you know? And so you've got your discrete event, you can do something, study it, and you've got a, an outcome um, and, um, so yeah, that'd be that'd be great. Sure, sure, be happy to do that. The, so the other thing that I, I did finally remember my question about network intervention. Uh, so um, yeah, the, in, in terms of the unintended consequences mm -hmm. uh, that you mentioned, uh, I was thinking, well, if these if these you know being somewhat cynical, I was thinking, well, if these if these ties were so important, why didn't they exist in the first place, right? What why why do we have to intervene to make them happen? Uh, you know, why didn't they, you know, just kind of form naturally? And, you know, maybe part of the answer is, well, they, these people just didn't know that the other existed. And, and so there was no opportunity for it. But I imagine that there might be other reasons why, uh, why connections that would seem to be beneficial don't materialize, because maybe there is some, uh, something else going on that uh, is either preventing them or, or, or disincentivizing them or, uh, you know, creating, uh, creating barriers to them. And do those, do those interventions uh, simply expose uh, the, the reasons why those ties didn't exist in the first place? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so that, that certainly could be the case. And I think, you know, a lot of it probably depends on the, 
the setting as well. I mean, so, um, you know, you could think, I mean, especially where, um, if I'm thinking about what you're saying, I could imagine that would happen a lot in like an office or these office spaces. Like, well, if, you know, uh, Joe and Sue don't work together, I mean, maybe they, maybe they tried and it didn't work out, you know? And so mm -hmm. you try to say, okay, now we work together. They're just incompatible personalities or something like that. Well, it doesn't even have to do with personality, necessarily have to do with personality, but maybe they're because, you know, people of a certain disciplinary training may not be able to collaborate effectively with people of a different disciplinary training or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. And so, um, so I think that's, there's, there's certainly an element to that. Um, and I mean, I think there is some evidence with respect to interdisciplinarity. I mean, there's, there's definitely some evidence that it's helpful uh, and can lead to new ideas, but there's also a lot of evidence that it's higher risk and that, you know, there are probably more flops, interdisciplinary flops than there are disciplinary flops and so forth. Um, and so, but, but, but assuming that we are trying to promote some kind of connections, whether it's like cross-discipline or, you know, across, uh, you know, demographic boundaries or community boundaries, and we feel like, yes, this is something we really know will be beneficial. Um, there are often these frictions that, um, that, that I think get in the way of that happening. And so like, as an illustration, I mean, I think the conference is a good example where you know, people really, and people genuinely, I mean, we, we've surveyed, other people have surveyed, and they say like, I really, the main reason I'm going to this conference is I wanna meet new people. <laughs> And then they don't do that because I think there's a lot of these social frictions where like, if you're a you know, student, are you gonna introduce yourself to some high status person who's talking with their old like grad school friend? You know, how do you elbow yourself in? You need sort of an icebreaker. And so one kind of the interventions that we have is, is sort of giving that icebreaker um, to help, help that happen. And um, um, you know, the, so I think there, you got to kind of start with a setting where you, you feel confident that it would make sense to have those. And then I think there's still these frictions. One, the biggest one probably being people just don't know the other pe person exists, but then there's the, we kind of call those the search frictions, right? Like how do you find someone that you want to connect to? And then there's the, these social frictions that we talk about, which are like, how do you make the icebreaker? And you know, how do you, how do you actually get up confidence to talk with someone? And, mm -hmm. and I mean, what those frictions are depends a bit on the, the setting, like whether it's a conference or I think the social frictions could probably be in the disciplinary context, like you've got very different vocabularies where you've got, you know, I need to publish in this journal, you need to publish in that journal. And so like, how do you resolve some of those things? Um, but but it's it's hard and it's, um, I think there's, we're you know, just at the very beginning of kind of trying to, to think about whether whether some of these interventions can be successful and, and the ways to do them and so forth so so um let me just since we're running short on time let me just move to my my closing questions so uh even though even though you're you know relatively uh, uh new faculty member um uh you know coming into the into the profession just to what six or seven years ago uh, you've already done a lot of service on uh, dissertation committees, I notice. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, at least seven doctoral students you've served on, on dissertation committees for, so that's great. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of, uh, it's a great opportunity. A lot of uh, junior faculty members don't get that opportunity to serve on so many dissertation mm -hmm. committees. So, so the question I was going to ask is, What's the most important piece of advice that you give to the doctoral students that you work with? Hmm. And, and also, what's the most important piece of advice that you received as a doctoral student? Mm -hmm. um, let me see. Well, I think um, probably the, I think the most important piece of advice that I give and the most important piece of advice I received are probably the same thing. Um, and I think that that is, and you know, this should be probably taken with you know a little bit of caution, but um, but but I think it's really important to. So I I, I sometimes um, uh, you know when I'm talking with doctoral students and they're asking about like how should they pick a topic or what should they do, um, you know, they worry a lot about well, are people going to find this interesting or should I do this? There's a lot of work on this lately, so maybe I should do that, and 
I say, I think it's very important to pursue things that you find are intrinsically interesting. And that's for a few reasons. One is that um, as opposed to doing things that other people tell you to do or that you think will be popular next week or things like that. And there's a few reasons for that. One is that um, you're gonna be working on your topic for a long time, you know? And if you mm -hmm. finish the first draft of your paper, you know, you're 10% you're of the way there probably, or even less. Uh, and so it better be something that you really, really like and you find interesting because you're gonna be with it for so long um, and you need to kind of keep up the motivation to keep working on that. Um, I think the same, for the same reason, you're gonna be most creative if you're picking something that you think is you know, intrinsically interesting and important, as opposed to if you're working on something just because you know, that's what you think other people will like. Um, and then the other thing I, I see is like, I, I tell that's really related is that you really gotta like trust your own instincts so sometimes if you think a puzzle or like a question is really um, is interesting and be like, but I don't think other people are going to find this interesting. I mean, there's some reason why you thought it was interesting and you've you know, had your training in strategy and you're thinking like a strategy person or a social science person. And so you need to, and so something struck a chord with you and uh, it can be hard to translate like why you thought that was interesting and, and think about how to, um, uh, which I think makes it hard to think about why other people might think it's interesting. But usually if you can work that out, since it, it struck you as interesting, then you can convey to other people why it's interesting. And maybe that's that inherent puzzle and so forth. Um, but it's worth like, like relying on your, your, it's worth trusting your instincts. And if you think a question is important, maybe it'll take you a while to find out what other people are going to think is useful about it, but there's probably something there. And so, you know, I think, that's that's sort of my advice is, is is sort of follow follow your interests and trust your trust your instincts when when choosing problems and pursuing them for those those sorts of reasons. Yeah, you point out an important uh, missing step, and you know whenever I when I ask, uh, that's an answer I've never heard to this question, uh, which is that um, uh, you might think that simply finding the interesting question is is enough but there's that missing extra step of being able to articulate why it's interesting right mm -hmm. so so those are two separate things mm -hmm. uh you know sometimes it may be easy to articulate why something is why you find something is interesting mm -hmm. uh but not necessarily and uh it may take some conversations with other people to to figure out well what is it what was it that is so interesting about this so that's a very good piece of advice well uh, once again, thank you for joining us uh, as our celebrity guest this morning for our little talk show ritual and for, um, uh, you know, for putting up with our, our uh, unusual ritual. So everybody, please join me in, in thanking uh, uh, our rising star guest, Russ Funk. Thanks so much, everyone. This was, was really fun.